morning. So if you have a Bible, uh, find Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 9, and we'll go all the way to the end of the chapter. Matthew chapter 9. The new heavens and the new earth will not be filled with the self-righteous, but with those whom Jesus has invited to the table of fellowship through his righteousness. It will be a place full of sinners, redeemed by grace through faith, who once were dead in their sins, blind to the truth, and unable to speak rightly of the things of God. His disciples will go and make more disciples in the meantime, traveling across streets and across oceans to proclaim the good news that they can come to that fellowship, that they can come to that table. Today, we come to the end of a large section in the Gospel of Matthew of Jesus's authoritative teaching and his authoritative action. So at the end of chapter 4 in Matthew, all the way to the end of chapter 9, we have this huge block, right, of the Sermon on the Mount and then these authoritative healings and teachings that surround them. We've witnessed in the last few weeks that Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew is clearly no mere man. Today, we get a taste of the kingdom of heaven, and that's the title of our message this morning is a preview of the kingdom, a preview of the kingdom. Truths that will be revealed in their fullness on the last day when Christ returns to make all things right can be previewed here in our passage as well as in our own lives. So my hope for us this morning is that we would catch a vision of that preview of the kingdom and that our eyes might be more and more fixed on the good news of the gospel of the kingdom and that we might live accordingly. So let's read together uh, starting in verse 9 to see some of these kingdom previews. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came, to, came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both 
are preserved. Let's pray before we go any further. God in heaven, there is so much for us to learn and see and behold in your word. Most importantly, Lord, when we open up your word, we see you. We see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so we pray that by the power of the Spirit, you might open our eyes to behold that glory. God, help us as we look at these passages and see a preview of the kingdom of heaven, a place where justice reigns, where sin is no more, where the wicked schemes of the enemy are done with once and for all, where all things are made right. God, help us to fix our eyes on that kingdom, to fix our eyes on your righteousness, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds to these truths. God, we love you. We praise you. We pray that your Holy Spirit might do a work among us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want us to see in our passage this morning, and we're going to read some more texts uh, throughout the chapter of Matthew 9 today, but the first thing I want us to see in Jesus' interactions with these people, uh, he, he interacts with a lot of people in this passage, is that Jesus calls and loves sinners. So if you're taking notes, that's the first point you may want to write down. Jesus calls and loves sinners. So so last week, if you remember, if you were here, we ended with the story in the beginning of Matthew 9 of Jesus healing a paralytic, but forgiving his sins as well because of his faith in Jesus. We saw that all those who come to Christ in faith will be received by faith. And so this week, we begin with Jesus's powerful, simple, effective call of Matthew. Look again at verse 9. Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Simple as that. No conversation, no backstory, no context. Jesus sees someone who he wants to come with him and calls him to follow me. And Matthew responds by rising and following him. When Jesus calls sinners to follow him, they come. Each of us, when we heard the gospel, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, when we heard the word of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we were transformed. We had dead hearts And the word of God, used by the spirit of God, did a work in us to revive our hearts, to resurrect these hearts, to give us a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone, if we want to use the language of Ezekiel the prophet. We were given the gift of faith, if we want to use the language of Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. But the word of God was the means by which this transformation took place. Right? It wasn't the result of meditation. It wasn't the result of moral action. It wasn't the result of walking enough old ladies across the street. It was hearing the word. It was reading the word. It was hearing the word proclaimed in gospel preaching. And it's that word, when spoken in power, that is effective to bring faith out of sinners. When God speaks, things happen. And this does not mean that reading the Bible in front of sinners is like a magic spell, 
Okay, so don't, don't hear me say this. It's not like, okay, well, the Bible has power to save sinners. That's what Romans 1 says. So if I just get a bunch of sinners and lots of people around me and start reading the Bible, they're just gonna be like, oh, can't help but follow Christ. That's not how it works. <laughs> Sometimes we wish it were that simple, right? But it's the power of the word and the power of the spirit. It does mean, it does mean, and this is something that we can trust, that people who you know, who do not follow Christ right now can come through the power of the gospel. They can hear the word and follow Jesus. There is no one you know on this planet that is too far to reach by the spirit and his word. And we see Jesus interacting with the Pharisees. We realize that it's only sinners. It's only those who have fallen short. It's only those who are unrighteous, who know their need for a Savior. And it's only those kinds of people who will respond to Jesus' call in faith. The Pharisees are coming at Jesus, looking at him reclining with tax collectors and sinners and going, why is he doing this? Why is he defiling himself with these unrighteous people? And Jesus says, look, Those who are well have no need for a physician. The righteous don't need me, right? You're righteous. You have no need of a physician. You have no need of a savior. I didn't come to call the well, but the the sick. Jesus' presence with tax collectors and sinners did not defile Jesus. And students, we have to wrestle with this fact That not only does Jesus call sinners and we have the the hope and the encouragement that we can go using the word confident that it will do work. That's that's good news for this little point that I'm trying to make. But the the hard fact that we need to wrestle with is this. When I read Matthew chapter 9, verse 10, Jesus reclined at the table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and we're reclining with Jesus and his disciples. It's not as though Jesus found a group of unrighteous people and inserted himself among them. It's that the unrighteous people heard that Jesus was somewhere and they came to him. And so the question that we have to wrestle with, that the fact that we have to deal with is that the sinners and the unrighteous and the spiritually sick were somehow drawn to the presence of Jesus. Like they were attracted to Jesus. It wasn't something that they wanted to be repelled by. It wasn't something they wanted to get away from. It's something that drew them in. They sat around the table and enjoyed his fellowship. Is that true for sinners in our context? Is that true for the unrighteous in our neighborhoods and around our church and in our classes? Are non-Christians somehow drawn to you or drawn to me by the fact that Christ is in me? I confess that I was convicted all throughout the week planning to preach this text. Asking myself the questions, am I living in such a way that those who do not know Jesus around me nonetheless know that I love them and care for them, that I want what's best for them, that I, that I hope and pray that God would bless them? Do the non-Christians of our community think of our church that way? 
Obviously, there's spiritual blindness. Obviously, there's misunderstanding. Obviously, to those outside of the church who hate the truth because they're spiritually blind and dead in their sins, for people who hate the truth, the truth that we proclaim will sound like hate in their ears. I get that. But the fact remains that when Jesus went and reclined with Matthew, sinners and tax collectors were drawn to him. Are we a people who repel the sick and the sinful? Or are we a people who lovingly call them to come? Because the wedding supper of the Lamb will be a table full of sinners who heard that call and came. When Jesus talks of fasting and new garments on cloths and new wine and new wineskins and we don't have time to, to dive into that passage, but the, the big idea of that passage is something new is happening. Something new is happening. For, for so long, the, the standard practice is you've got to clean yourself up before you can come to Yahweh. The standard understanding of the Pharisees who taught the word to the people of Israel is you better make sure you're following the law. You better make sure you're getting your sacrifices in order. You better make sure you're not doing what you ought not to be doing on the Sabbath. You better make sure you're doing and doing and doing. And Jesus is saying, just come. Just come. Something new is happening. Because Jesus calls and loves sinners, just like you and me. All right, so let's keep reading. Verse 18. While he was saying these things to them, so just pause. We've got Jesus around tax collectors and sinners, Pharisees who are insulted by his presence among them, and the disciples of John asking him questions about fasting. I mean, it's a, it's a party. This is a big house right? Wherever he's at. And while he was saying these things, verse 18, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. Behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. And Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away. The girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in, took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. So not only does Jesus call and love sinners as a preview of the kingdom, but the second preview is this. Jesus brings life from death. 
Jesus brings life from death. In this beautiful passage, we see two healings woven together. A young girl has died, but the father, a ruler, or more specifically, the ruler of a synagogue in that place, comes to Jesus believing. There's the key, right? He's coming to Jesus in faith, believing that if Jesus is there, he is able to bring life out of death. It's not just healing the sick. It's not just opening the eyes of the blind. It's not just casting out demons. She's dead. And yet this ruler says, if I can just get Jesus to come, he can make this right. So they go. He arises and goes with his disciples. And on the way, there's a woman who's been suffering from some kind of bleeding disorder. And history has given us a lot of different ways to think about this. But the fact remains that what we know is this. All throughout Scripture, blood is symbolic of life. So if she has been bleeding for 12 years, she's losing her life. We don't know all of the details around her condition. We just know that it's real. And other gospels give us kind of more context about all the things that she's tried to do in her own power and in the the strength of doctors and the, the power that her money was able to give as far as treatments are concerned. Nothing has helped. She comes to Jesus and touches one of the tassels of his robe, believing in her heart that if she could just Don't miss this. If she could just be connected to Jesus, if she could just have a connection to Jesus, then she would be made well. If she could just touch Jesus, Jesus would be able to heal her. Her faith is what actually connects her to the Christ. But she professes that faith. She professes that belief. She acts accordingly to her belief by reaching out and physically touching him. And Jesus responds to her action with this comforting word, quite familiar to what he told the paralytic. So just go back a couple, maybe one page to verse 2 of chapter 9. They brought the paralytic before Jesus And it says, and when Jesus saw their faith, including the paralytic, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now skip back down to verse 22. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Now we need to see her for just a moment, or see here for just a moment rather, that the woman's concept of the mechanics of her healing may have been a little off, right? It's not physically touching Jesus' tassels that makes her ailment go away. But her faith in Christ is what brings healing and life. So we must be careful. 
we must be really careful when we meet other Christians who disagree with us on secondary and tertiary matters. This woman did not have a robust theology of salvation by grace through faith alone. She didn't understand the Bible verses. She hadn't read them because they hadn't been written yet. All she knows is, if I can get to Jesus, he'll make me well. And so, students, you have classmates and family members who are in different churches who believe the gospel, who believe that the Bible is the word of God, who believe that Jesus and Jesus alone is the way of salvation, who, who, who believe the historic creeds of our faith, and you disagree with them on how their church is structured, or what kind of people can be leaders, or some other secondary and tertiary. Not, that doesn't mean unimportant, but it's not the core of what it means to be a Christian. Students, I want you to have deep, robust, confident doctrine. I think in order for you to be transformed by the renewing of your minds, as Paul says in Romans chapter 12, you have to understand the word. That's vital. I mean, I'm going to get a doctorate in theology for that reason. So I'm not anti-theology, but what I'm saying is the rightness of your doctrine is not what saves you and brings you healing. Are you connected to Jesus? That's the question. Is your faith in the rightness of your theology or is your faith in Jesus? That's the question. So we need to be careful because this woman, this woman teaches us that in the end, the clarity of our doctrine doesn't justify us. Now, again, hear me. I want your doctrine to be clear. <laughs> you should want that. You should want to know God rightly. But at the end of the day, the clarity of your doctrine does not justify you. The object of your faith does. So now let's make the connection. She's losing her life. And yet, she touches Jesus, and she's made alive. Remember who is here to witness this scene. The ruler. The father of the daughter who has just died. Watch this happen. And in the Gospel of Mark, we're not in the Gospel of Mark, but it, it's helpful for us. In, in, in Mark, Mark gives us this extra phrase in the story where he looks at the ruler and says, do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, believe. Have faith. Jesus is able to take the dying and make them alive. So believe that I am able to take the dead and make them alive. So when Jesus and the ruler come into the house full of mourning, he meets a group of people who see... They see that she's dead, but they do not see with the eyes of faith. They don't believe that Jesus will be able to do anything. In fact, they laugh at Jesus. They ridicule him. And they are subsequently put out of the house. Those who mock Jesus and fail to believe in Jesus will not be welcome to witness the salvation of Jesus. 
So Jesus goes in and takes the girl by the hand, similar to how he took Peter's mother-in-law by the hand and brought this girl back to life. And in both of these stories, we see Jesus' compassion on display for those in need. Jesus is ready and willing to save. You're never going to catch him busy to save. He's ready and willing. And all those who place their faith in him can be confident that they have his life and that their ultimate healing is coming. We have to keep going. Verse 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. And he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. Third preview of the kingdom. Jesus opens blind eyes. Jesus opens blind eyes. He's leaving this healing of bringing life out of death. These two blind men who cannot see but must nonetheless hear that this Jesus of Nazareth is walking by and they begin to cry out. Not something we've heard before in the Gospel of Matthew, at least not explicitly. Remember, we started the Gospel of Matthew with this clear indication that what Matthew wants us to learn, among many other things, but one of the chief things he wants us to learn in his gospel is that Jesus is the son of David. He is the promised Davidic king. He will rule and reign over a kingdom that will last forever. And so explicitly now, we're hearing these two blind men who have not seen but have heard and understood enough to cry out this confession and this request. Have mercy on us, son of David. Have mercy on us, son of David. These two things are vitally important. The first is a recognition of their need. More than their physical blindness. Here, they're not saying, help us see. They're not saying, heal our eyes. They're saying, have mercy on us. More than just their physical blindness, they need the mercy of Jesus. And the second is a recognition of Jesus as the one who is promised to come. So even though these men were physically blind, they recognized the son of David. They could not see, and yet they saw. So Jesus asks them, do you believe 
then I'm able to do this? It's another question of faith, isn't it? Do you believe? And they respond, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Now, there's a question for us here. Have mercy on us, son of David. That's the call from the blind men. Have mercy on us. And then Jesus asks them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? What is the this that Jesus is referring to? Is the this that Jesus is referring to the the idea that Jesus is strong enough to give them physical sight? Perhaps. But that's not what they asked for, is it? They asked to receive his mercy. And so perhaps Jesus is asking, do you believe that I'm able to give mercy? In Matthew chapter 9, the first four verses, we see the forgiveness of sins connected to physical healing. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 25, in the middle of that passage, we see a woman healed with her issue of blood according to her faith in Jesus. And now here again for the third time, we see two blind men receiving the mercy of God. And that mercy is given evidence by the healing of their eyes. According to your faith, be it done for you, he says. And he touches their eyes. I once was blind, but now I see. It's a phrase that we sing in amazing grace. And they experienced it. Don't miss the pattern that we're really starting to pick up on. In Matthew chapter 9, but also throughout the Gospels and throughout the New Testament, faith is everything. It doesn't matter where you come from, what your background is, what you've done previously, what kind of status you've earned, whether you're a teacher or not, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. Do you believe? Faith is everything. The healing, the restoration, life from death, even the forgiveness of sins, it all depends on faith. And so the question for you and for me and for everyone in the world is this. Do you believe in Jesus as he is? Do you believe in Jesus as he is? Now it may seem weird as we read this text, to notice Jesus commanding these guys who have just received sight instead of blindness to not talk about it. (laughs) I kind of wonder, I mean, it's not in the text, but you just have to wonder. It's, It's almost like Jesus is saying, hey, just keep acting blind. Like, don't tell anyone that I healed you. It's just like, oh, I can't, I can't see anymore. Like, still blind. Uh, Can't see anything. Like, He's telling those two men, don't tell anyone. Why is he doing this? We need to remember that the, the son of David title in this time 
was loaded with meaning and had unfortunately warped into something it was not originally meant to be. Jews who talked about the coming son of David were thinking primarily about a warrior king who would come through the line of David, who would sit on the throne in Israel, the country, and overthrow all of their political and military enemies. They were looking for a warrior. They were looking for a ruler. They were looking for someone who would overthrow Rome. They were looking for somebody who would bring national peace and prosperity. But Jesus is much, much more than that. And so if these men are going to go out in Israel and say, the son of David is here, the son of David is here, then there'll be Israelites all over the country who are known as zealots start to really take up these arms and get ready for war. But that's not what Jesus has come to do. If all I thought of Jesus was that he was Israel's king, then I'm missing out on huge parts of who Jesus is. And sometimes, if we're honest, we have in our minds a description of who Jesus is that is failing to consider the whole counsel of God's word. You might say, who is Jesus? Oh, he's my Lord. As in, he's the person that lives in heaven and kind of looks over everything and sees everything and is just kind of like hanging out. Like that's what you th- say when you mean Lord. Or what's what you mean when you say Lord? My, he's my Savior? He's my Savior? Yes, he is. But sometimes when we think Savior, we just think he's the guy who looks at me and all of my sins and unrighteousness and filthiness and, and uh, despair and just says, hey, you're good. You're good. Don't worry about it. I got you. You're forgiven. Nothing else necessary to do. And you miss the fact that your sins have to be dealt with one way or another. You might say, he's my friend. He's my helper. You might have other things in mind when you think of Jesus. And all of these things are right and good. But what I want to encourage you to do and what I'm begging you to do for the rest of your life is to search God's word to see the fuller picture. That Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the second person of the Trinity, the Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah, the Son of Abraham, the Son of David, the greater priest than Melchizedek, the greater prophet than Moses, and on and on and on we could go. The more we know and understand about who Jesus is, the more worthy of worship and worthy of obedience he will be for each of us. In other words, to bring it back to our text, our vision will become more clear as we more clearly behold the Son of God. Our blindness will be wiped away as we continue to look at and behold all that Jesus is. Fourth thing, we're already way behind. No wonder I decided to start on time. Look at verse 32. 
And as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. So Jesus calls and loves sinners. He brings life out of death. He opens blind eyes. All of these previews of the kingdom should be a great encouragement for us, a great clarifier for us. And number four, Jesus conquers Satan's schemes. Something that we will know and experience in fullness when Christ comes back to throw him into the lake of fire but something that we can experience in part today. Jesus conquers Satan's schemes. So last week we had a trio of healing events. This week keeps the rhythm going. The third big healing event here is of a man who is oppressed by a demon and therefore is mute. He cannot speak. Now there's a whole question about what is the connection between demonic activity and disability? And sometimes there's no connection at all. The fact is we live in a broken world, a fallen world, a sinful world. We're all guilty of sin and therefore sinners by nature. And so sometimes things are broken because we live in a broken world. But sometimes, as Matthew 9 tells us, sometimes that disability is because there's something else going on. And Matthew shows us that connection here. He casts out the demon the man begins to speak. He conquered the, deacon, the demon and sent him away so that now all the crowds are marveling. Never was anything like this in Israel ever seen. They're astounded at the work of Christ. They're astounded that Jesus was able to do something no one else was able to do. It certainly wasn't the first time that this man tried to receive exorcism. But the Pharisees are not convinced. Their hard hearts would rather attribute Jesus' work to Satan than to God. That's what they say when they say he casts out demons by the prince of demons. Which is obviously a very, very dangerous thing to do. Right? If we're looking at the work of God and you're like, man, Satan is pretty strong. Don't do that. (laughs) Don't attribute to the devil what God is doing. And oftentimes, The reason why we would ever be tempted to do that is because we ourselves are wrapped up in sin and up is down and down is up and we are blinded by our own self-righteousness or our own wickedness. The devil is a real enemy with real allies seeking to do real damage to God's creation, especially his image bearers. And apart from the work of God, we are no match for their power. Guess who knows the Bible way more than any of us? Every demon. James tells us the demons believe. They understand who God is. They understand what he has done. The, The way the devil tries to tempt Jesus in the early stages of his ministry is by quoting scripture to him. 
In our own strength, we are no match for their power. But Jesus is able to overcome the plans of the devil and his demons. And we would do well to believe this because we do not need to think for a second that this kind of thing is only happening in the tribes of Africa or the jungles of South America or some other foreign place that's not called Auburn Opelika. Don't be deceived. Our enemy is still at work. And he's cunning. And he's crafty. And there are so many things in our culture that you experience where it's it's almost like sometimes when you're on social media and it's almost like bad things are coming for you. Things that you ought not to look at are just finding their way to you. That's not just because a multi-billion dollar industry has an algorithm that they can put in your information to get you content that you will look at so that they can make money. That's, that is going on, but there's something more than that. And yet, the power of Christ is able to overcome. And the power of his word is effective. So perhaps when you are tempted to fall into sin, perhaps when you are tempted to do things you are not supposed to do, perhaps when you are tempted to long after things and lust after things and get wrapped up in sin and wickedness and fall prey to the desires of our enemy, the devil, and his demons, you might remember that the way in which Christ overcomes that is his word. And so perhaps we might hide God's word in our hearts that we might not sin against God. We might trust the promises of God over the promises that a sinful world offers us. Now, as we conclude and land the plane, Jesus is leading his disciples by example. Remember, his disciples are here the whole time watching him teach, watching him heal, watching him Uh, cast out demons, watching him uh, overthrow the, the clever schemes of the Pharisees, showing compassion. Look at verse 35. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. That's leading by example. Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So Jesus leads by example, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and living out that kingdom life by bringing life and healing to those who are in need, showing compassion to those who are helpless and hopeless and lost. It's proclamation and action. And then Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. I mean, he's, he's telling his disciples this. And he's saying to the disciples, pray to the Lord of the harvest 
that he might raise up more laborers to go into the harvest. What we'll see is next week, Jesus answers that prayer by sending out the disciples. (laughs) He's like, hey, disciples, you pray that God would raise up laborers. And in the very next verse, he called them his 12 disciples and gave them authority. And then he sends them out. (laughs) So don't miss this. God may lead you to pray for something that he will then equip you to fulfill. Right? We love the Great Commission. We love missions. And our prayer might be, God, would you raise up laborers for the harvest? There are millions and millions and millions of people who have never heard of this kingdom. But don't think that you praying that God would answer that somehow brings you out of the story. It may drive you more deep into it. He might raise you up to be a laborer in the harvest. He might send you out to the mission field in a place that's hard to reach where there is no church worshiping Jesus. He might raise you up to be a stay-at-home mom who raises up kids in fear and admonition of the Lord so that you might send them out like arrows into the world. He might raise you up to be a pastor or a teacher so that you might rightly divide the word of truth and teach God's whole counsel to those who will then go out to the ends of the earth and tell those who've never heard. He might call you to just have a ordinary jobs. They might be surrounded by lost people who hear but do not hear, who see but do not see. Don't miss this. The harvest is not somewhere that you're not. You're in it. And thinking back on all I've said today, I just want to end where I began with a vision of that kingdom of heaven that's coming. The new heavens and the new earth will not be filled with the self-righteous, but with those whom Jesus has invited to the table of fellowship through his righteousness. It will be a place full of sinners, redeemed by grace through faith, who once were dead in their sins, blind to the truth, and unable to speak rightly of the things of God. That's the hope that we have for the future. That's where we are headed if we are in Christ. And in the meantime, his disciples go and make more disciples, traveling across streets and across oceans to proclaim the good news that they can come. So in the meantime, we go into the world against a real spiritual enemy, but confident in the power of Christ rather than our own power. One last thing. I know we're way over time, so what's one more passage? Flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. No comment on this. We're just going to read and I'm going to pray. I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 4. Ah. Fell for the oldest trick in the book. The one instead of the two. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If you are in Christ, you are on mission to be about the kingdom. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, 
underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We go and shine the light of the glory of God in the word of Christ to those who are blind unless God opens their eyes to see. Let's pray.